Today, we're going to be speaking with Justin Welsh. He's the SVP of sales of Patient Pop, and he was the first salesperson there, and he brought it from zero to $40 million in recurring revenue. And he's going to be sharing with us how to build teams, how to hire the first salesperson, as he's been the first salesperson for several early stage startups. We're also going to be speaking about when to know when it's time to scale and how to go about that. It's going to be a great episode with Justin. And before we get started, I'd like to tell you about startup sales and what we're doing. If you're an early stage startup and you need help building out your sales processes, whether that's inbound or outbound sales processes, then we could come in and help you with that. We could help you in building the processes itself, writing the content for emails, putting together your outbound strategy and the infrastructure around that, and building and training the team to implement everything once it gets up and running. So if you want more information on that, you can find out at startupsales.io or you could email me at adam at startupsales.io. Let's get listening to today's episode with Justin and I really hope that you find a lot of value in it. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Excellent. Justin, thanks for joining us. Awesome. Glad to be here, Adam. Terrific. I, I like the uh, animals in your background there. <laughs> thanks. Uh, my wife and I bought these at an art show, and it kind of looks like a child's room, even though we don't have a, a kid. But yeah, I like them, so they fit well. Yeah, brings nice life to it, too. And what, uh, what kind of books do you have back there? Oh, man, I've got everything. I, I love to read sales books and marketing books. I saw you had Mark Roberge uh, on the show. So sales acceleration formula is one of my favorite. But I'm also really into digital marketing. You know, as I grow our business, that's an area that I'm, I'm not as strong in. And so I spend a lot of time just educating myself on marketing. So I've got uh, like hacking growth and the startup hand guide to digital marketing and so stuff like that. Yeah, I see Seth Goodwin there in the corner. That's right. Yep. <laughs> All right. So good. You read a lot. Well, who is who is Justin Welsh and uh, what's your experience? Yeah. I am the SVP of sales at a Los Angeles-based company called Patient Pop. And we're really the first practice growth platform for healthcare providers. So the easiest way to think about that is we're an all-in-one marketing platform. So very similar to HubSpot, um, but we do it for physicians and doctors. And uh, I've been at Patient Pop for uh, about four and a half years now. And grown the business from essentially zero dollars in revenue to upwards of I think we're around forty-five or forty-six million in recurring revenue. Before that, I was one of the first sales hires and sales leaders at a New York-based business called Zocdoc. So joined there when there were just about uh, nine or ten folks, and uh, that company is still going strong. Seven hundred and fifty employees. I think its last valuation was a few billion dollars. And prior to that, uh, I cut my teeth in the medical device space. So working in the operating room with surgeons. But really, it's been that last 10 years in the, in the technology space where I've made my mark as a, as a sales leader and now as a, the SVP of sales over at Patient Pop. It's hard to uh, come in as the first salesperson with nothing and, and grow yeah. it, huh? Yeah, <laughs> totally. A lot of fun, though. 
Yeah, definitely. It's a real challenge and always, uh, always keeps you learning. Yes. What should a founder know when wanting to build out a t- sales team? I would say building a sales team, in my opinion, is very similar to building like a basketball team. Meaning, I think founders often anticipate that the first thing that they should do is go out and get um, every single all-star salesperson that they can possibly think of. But salespeople, a lot like basketball players, they kind of fit into different parts of the team and they need different tools around them to be really successful. So when I think about uh, building a sales team from scratch, if I were a founder doing that, I would want to understand the difference between selecting really good salespeople and selecting salespeople that are going to come into an early stage startup and perform really well. And what I mean by that is you can look at two resumes of two sales all-stars, people who have achieved quota. But once you start peeling back the onion, you're going to really understand as a founder, is this person going to come in and have an impact in my early stage business? So did this uh, candidate A do it with lots of resources, lots of help, lots of collateral, a fully baked organization? If the answer is yes, they did, then oftentimes that person doesn't thrive as much as candidate B who's done it, but done it in, a, in an environment where there was nothing. And so the, what I often would educate a founder on, especially when I'm working with, with businesses today, is find that person that's done it before in a resource-free environment. Because when you find that person who is super creative, super curious, uh, and has done it before, you've got yourself a gem, but make sure that you hire two people. And if you're building a business, you should try your, your best to eliminate false positives, eliminate false negatives, making sure that you know, you're testing it with two salespeople. And you also want to create competition. So to the extent that you can go out and hire two really good salespeople at first who have both been in resource-free environments and then watch them compete, to me, that's, that's like lesson number one for building a business from the ground up. Interesting. So hire two, two performers. Yep. Then who, who do you listen to as far as which direction to kind of build the team? And not just building the team, but to build the systems in place, the sales process. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think ultimately you want to take into consideration both of their feedback, right? And let me maybe back up a moment here as well. When, when you hire one person, if they don't go out and perform, you might get a, a false negative, right? You might say, wow, we don't have product market fit or uh, my customer isn't buying our product and it's too expensive. Whereas if they're really good, you might actually get a, a false positive where you say, wow, this is super easy and every person that I hire is going to be excellent. So I think going out and making sure you get those two is really important. At that point in time, you have to sort of understand the differences between the two people you hire. And um, one, someone might be very process-oriented versus two, someone might be a lone wolf. And it's really in the founder's best interest to understand who is the process-oriented person that I've hired. Because in the early stages of your business, you might get away with hiring a lone wolf. You might get away with putting someone on an island, watch them go out and perform. But ultimately, as you scale your business, you're going to need processes in place. So to answer your question, it's the person that comes back and says, 
I do A, which leads me to B, B, which leads me to C, and C, which leads me to D in a very consistent path. That's the person who, who you really want to take what they're saying into consideration. But you also want to be learning from your lone wolf. What's the pitch? Uh, what's the message? What's the pain that resonates most with my customer? So to, as a good founder, I, I think you got to listen to both people, but it's really kind of putting a stake in the ground early on the process that you need to scale. Absolutely, because the, the lone wolf just... He has processes, he or she has processes. They just don't know what they are. They can't define them. <laughs> that's, that's right. And, and I've seen so many times that lone wolf persona be promoted into a management role. And it's like Michael Jordan, right? Like can't really describe to another person why he's so good at basketball. Same, same thing as a, as a salesperson, right? Like they, they know they succeed, but they can't evangelize that. They can't talk about it. They can't teach it. And to me, that's a, a major error. I see a lot of early stage founders making is seeing this lone wolf salesperson and saying, let's get that guy or girl into a sales management role when it's really the process-based salesperson that should be promoted into that role. So should you hire them at the same time or should you kind of stagger them to give them training? I always advocate early in a business's history for hiring two salespeople at the same time. You're, you're going to learn from every hire you make. And to be clear, like, you'll learn a lot from the lone wolf or you'll learn a lot from the team player or whatever persona you, you hire, as long as you have one process-oriented salesperson, which to me is how I think about a first sales hire, it's great to get other folks onto the team that you're going to learn from. So to me, it's eliminating those false positives. It's eliminating those false negatives. It's fostering competition between the two salespeople. There are so many positives that you have by hiring two people at once, that that's what I advocate for. Okay. And what happens, uh, which inevitably does a lot of the time, you, you hire the wrong person, you have to let them go or they leave yep. within several months. Yep. Do you, do you hurry up and fill that position? I mean, I guess it depends. Uh, it depends on the business, right? So if you're still proving out product market fit and you've got you know, one salesperson left, I would say you want to go ahead and, and backfill that person that you lost. But really, you should be thinking ahead of that. If you have a repeatable and consistent process, you shouldn't be taken by surprise if one of your two salespeople leaves or doesn't work out. You should be actively looking to grow your sales team once you understand that you have a cost-efficient way of bringing people on board. Early in my history at PatientPop, once I recognized that I had a repeatable process, I wasn't, you know, sitting around waiting for any of my salespeople to leave. Number one, I, I took the, the guys and girls that were excellent and, and made sure that they got compensated well, they got treated well, they had a great path for success. But number two, I was always out hiring. Uh, and one thing that I see a lot of founders maybe forget early in the process is always be hiring, always be adding talent to your team. You know, businesses don't grow you know, by, by not going out and filling your bench or talking to future all-stars, you should be hiring for your team. So when that unexpected attrition happens, you're, you're ready. You're not reacting. You've been proactive. I've got so many questions from you. Sure. Uh, <laughs> should you hire the, either both the, the lone wolf or the uh, process-oriented person with the experience of like, that they have in companies taken from zero to 1 million or from 1 million to 10 million? Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, again, it can, it can maybe depend on the circumstance, but you know, when I think about my first sales hire that I made in New York, his name was Sagar Patel. He didn't actually look like that at all. He had come from 
I think, a medical device background. He was an engineer previously, but he was just super curious and he was able to really describe to me how he might attack the role. And he had been in a role previously with a really small med device company. And he had talked about to me, I built my own collateral. I, uh, I figured out my own process. And to me, that was more attractive than whether or not he had taken a business from zero to 1 million or zero to 10 million. It was the environment in which he had done that. And so when I went out and hired him, you know, when you make your first sales hire, you should never hear like, hey, I don't have enough resources to be successful. So to me, that's like the most important thing is I can recall a time when he was going to Kinko's and creating like his own collateral at FedEx Kinko's, like making, drawing things and printing out PowerPoints and laminating them. And he's like, hey, we don't have a marketing department. So I want to go ahead and get this stuff done. So it's really like more that mindset or the way that that person acts than it is necessarily whether they've gone from zero to one or one to 10. Because oftentimes if you do hire that person who's gone from one to 10, like that's a burnout, man. Like that, that you're tired after doing that one time before. And so I often just look for someone who's curious, someone who's coachable, has a strong work ethic, creates things on their own. You know, that that's how I really look for a first salesperson versus whether or not they fit into this box of, of zero to one or one to 10, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. So some of that's also resourceful as well, you know, sure, going to sure. make their own slides. So I think that's totally, really, it's almost a unicorn. I don't know how it is in the States to find this, but I'm in Israel and sure. and to find these kind of people is a unicorn. So how are you finding them? Yeah, man, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think I wrote a LinkedIn post about this the other day. I called it a purple squirrel. It's like a really hard person to find. It's a person who is both a thinker, right? Very process driven because they're going to be defining your processes moving forward. So they need to be cerebral. They need to be thinking. They need to be organized. But at the same time, they have to be like a wind up doll where you kind of twist the back and out they go and they figure out collateral and they figure out messaging and they're running around like crazy. And, and getting both of those things is really, really difficult. So for me, it's just understanding before you go out and hire people what your ideal candidate persona is. And to me, like, I see too many founders go out and say, you know, Jim was a great sales rep at this last business. So he's going to be a great first sales hire for us. And much like I talked about earlier, like what was Jim's experience in that last business? What did that business look like? So to me, I'm often looking for someone who has been resourceful in the beginning, right? Someone who, while again, it's not zero to one or one to 10, someone who is sold at the same velocity that I sell at. So our, our sales cycles at Patient Pop are about 8.6 days. So I don't want someone who sold a 90 day sales cycle. I'm looking for someone who's sold generally in a similar velocity. I'm looking for someone who's done it in a very resourceful way. I'm looking for somebody who is extraordinarily curious during the interview process. And to me, it's just identifying what that candidate persona looks like before you make that hire. The first sales hire is so important that you don't want to throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and hope it sticks. You want to be extremely focused on that person. And, you know, I, I saw your show with, with Mark Roberge and he does a great job in his book, the sales acceleration formula of really looking at the five characteristics of a top, top quality sales producer. So I use a lot of what I read in his book to help define that ideal candidate persona and, and hire against it. What are some of the questions that you're asking during the interview to bring to life if they have these characteristics or not? To me, a lot of the questions during the interview are, are very like personality based. So will we work well together? Can you evangelize to me why you're a great salesperson? 
for, for me, the way that I figure those things out is less about the questions in the interview and it's more about the pre-interview prep. So oftentimes 24 hours before uh, the interview, especially when I was building patient pop and there was only one or two salespeople, we probably don't do this as effectively anymore, but I'm sending them, you know, a one page document saying, Hey, here's the scenario. Here's the setup. Looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. No collateral, no PowerPoint deck, no uh, nothing. Like come in and wow me, right? Create something, whiteboard something, like spend time that night putting things together in a 24-hour time crunch. I love to see what people do when you give them very little. So to me, like that is the easiest way to say, is someone going to come into my business, which doesn't have resources or funding or a marketing department and figure it out? And if they can figure it out 24 hours before the interview process, that, that to me has always been a huge indicator. So you're actually asking them to, to it's, not, it's less of an interview, it's more of like a scenario-based role play. Totally. We, we have combo scenario-based role plays and interviews. Like I'm going to ask a lot of interview questions, you know, that are very personality based. I'm going to ask them situational interview questions. Those are always good for peeling back the onion and getting behind what's really true and false in someone's resume. But I love to see someone's motivation when I send them a role, a role play, right? Hey man, here's something, uh, here's something, by the way, it's 9 PM looking forward to our interview tomorrow at 9 AM come prepared to have a discussion around this particular, you know, scenario in our business. And I don't have a whole lot of information for you. So get creative to me. That is, that is excellent. I also like asking people questions where I put them in a situation where they feel like they've made a mistake. Because to me, early on in a company's history, you're going to pitch your product and a salesperson's going to find themselves in a situation where they think they've put their foot in their mouth or they've made a mistake with a customer and they're going to have to slowly kind of backpedal out of that and pivot and get back on track. So I'll ask questions like, hey, there's three scenarios, scenario A, B, and C. You've got an hour of my time as your manager. How might we spend our time together? And regardless of what answer they give them, I, I ask them and say something to the effect of, you know, what if I told you I thought that was the worst way that we could possibly spend our time together and see if they can work out of that real life, real time objection. That's, an, that's a customer objection. And can they actually work out of it in real time in front of me during the interview? And if they yeah. can't, red face, sweating, panicky, it, it, you know, then that's a good indicator of the calm, cool, and collective behavior that you need to be a, a first salesperson in a, in a technology business. That's interesting. And, and you don't think that uh, it could give you a false negative? I don't think so. Like generally when I, if I take a look back at all of my top performers in my team, both in this business and my previous business, one thing that they all have in common is they don't panic. They yeah. stay very, very calm, cool, and collected during any type of situation. And so that question always shows me, is this person someone who's going to be panic stricken in this situation? Or are they going to be cool, calm, and collective? And you might think I'm talking about in front of a customer, and I am, and that applies. But as someone as a first sales hire, second sales hire, they're going to be managers, directors, VPs. And I don't know about you, man, but I, this is my third business I've done like this. And as you grow through the business, like there's a lot of pressure, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, and you need to be able to handle yourself in a mature, calm, and responsible way. That's why I love that question. Yeah, I like that a lot. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> I think one of the things you said earlier is that they're curious that, and yeah. they come in. And I, this is a big red flag that gets washed over by most people during the interview. If 
if a candidate comes in and has no questions about your company, about your processes, that's a huge yes. red flag that they're just looking for huge. a paycheck. Totally. You know, yeah. They could be a terrific salesperson, but they, they'll probably walk away a month later if somebody comes and waves another $100 at them. I, I agree so much with you there. You know, nothing makes me happier than when I say, hey, it's the end of the interview. Do you have any questions for me? Or, and they have four pages worth of questions. Like, I'm thinking about a, a person on my inside sales team right now who's just so hyper curious. She's just like always digging in. If she can't find the answer to something, she's online researching it constantly. And like that curiosity leads her to be a top performer on my team versus when I wrap up in an interview and someone's like, no, I kind of had my questions answered by the previous two interviewers, you know, not trying to sound arrogant or anything, but I'm, I'm the VP of sales there. Like, don't you have different questions for me? Don't you, can I give you a different perspective? Like, is there anything that's relevant to, to my role that I could answer for you? And, and if they don't, it's just a, it's a hard pass for me. All right. Again, also some, another thing you said is that it was really important for you to compensate your first salespeople. Well, that's right. all salespeople, but especially the first salespeople. How do you come up with a conversation when you don't even know what the sales cycle looks like yet, when you don't know what the targets should really be yet? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think you make some assumptions, right? So after having been in businesses that have similar sales cycles, uh, first of all, if I look at the, the average contract value, so at Patient Pop, ours is about 13500 And so I made an assumption that that would probably be about a two-week sales cycle. Um, it ended up being shorter than that. We've driven it down over time. But to me, it's just making some simple assumptions around average contract value, sales velocity, number of subscriptions or seats or revenue or however you you quote your salespeople and putting a stake in the ground and then operating against it. And so that's how I generally will set a compensation plan. But I have a rule for my comp plans. And that is I like to rob poor performers and pay top performers. So I see so many comp plans where people are being compensated at dollar one. And if you're compensating performers at dollar one, you're taking that money from somewhere. So where are you taking it from? You're taking it from your top performers. And so I like a minimum threshold for compensation, meaning whether that's 40 or 50% of quota, I want someone to meet a floor before they're earning a dollar. And that way I can take everything below that floor and I can move it up and I can pay my top performers more on their top dollars and pay my bottom performers less. The overall goal is my top performers should be driving sports cars, wearing nice clothes, good watches. My bottom performers should be actively looking for another role somewhere else. <laughs> if, you give, if you've given them that time to do so. That's right. Yep. Yeah. How do you start to onboard your, your salespeople, your first salespeople? With a lot of communication. I think that's something that's really missed in sales, which is throw this person in a conference room and you know teach them the pitch and away they go. To me, it's, it's about communication. It's about welcome, welcoming them into your family, basically, because if you don't, then the opportunity for them to actually not show up on day one is, is pretty high. It's happened to me before and it, it stinks. So first, it's really making sure that you're communicating with them throughout the course of onboarding before they even start. And then it's connecting them to um, really important stakeholders in your business. So when you make a first sales hire, 
Like they've got to meet your, if you have one, your VP of marketing, they have to spend time with your chief technology officer. They need to be working with your engineers and looking at the back end of your product. They should understand how your head of customer success operates. They should be going to lunch, having meetings and talking with all relevant stakeholders in your business, because that's a really huge opportunity for them to learn. Don't make it about the pitch, make it about your business. Because if you introduce your first sales hires to everybody in your business, then they have a vested interest in the success of your business. And when you do that, they know everything from different vantage points. They can think holistically across your team and they understand how their actions essentially impact other people. So for me, it's very much a family-based onboarding uh, criteria where they're talking with every single solitary stakeholder in your business. Outside of that, to me, it's really as a founder, right? Or as the leader, as the, as the VP of sales, it's, it's learning by showing, right? I don't want to just say, here's your script, here's your pitch. Like I'm going to go out and I'm going to show that person how to do it. I'm going to hit the streets. I'm going to hit the phones. I'm going to make the calls, pitch the product, negotiate the deals. And they're going to be, they're going to be sitting there watching and learning alongside with me because early stage, like, you know, seed round, maybe going for your A round, like you're not big enough to delegate that work to somebody else. You need to be in the trenches with your first sales hires. And, and that's what I did for probably my first 30 to 35 salespeople. Your first salespeople, your first sales hire, you're not going to have a VP. You're going to be the founder sure. yourself. Sure. As a founder, I'm not one. I'm the, the VP of sales, but I had co-founders at Patient Pop, Luke Curvin and Travis Schneider. They went with me and pitched with me when they hired me. And they went and they did the same with all the other salespeople. Like as a founder, you should be pitching and closing your first 10, 15, 20 customers to understand what is the pitch? How does it work? What's the velocity? And you can't hire salespeople in and then not show them the ropes. Like as, a, as an early stage founder, it is on you to show those salespeople the ropes. How do you do it? You've been learning over the course of the last six months, eight months, 10 months, however long you've been a founder without salespeople. And to the extent that you can distill that information down into your new sales hire, you've got to be doing that. So this idea of like a hands-off technical founder to me is like no more. You're, you can be a technical founder all you want, but you better learn to sell your product. You're selling your company to investors all the time. So that's right. don't be so scared of sales. That's right. <laughs> you were explaining before about making sure that everybody is part of the family. I yeah. wanted to also bring up another point that it's not just about making sure that they feel part of the company and the family, which I couldn't agree more with you. But mm -hmm. it's also for later down the road because then you know if you've got a problem, who to go to so mm -hmm. that understand that and you understand the inner workings so that you understand if, if a customer is asking for something to be changed or added, you could understand what kind of resources would be required and if it's worthwhile or not to mm -hmm. bring it up the line. Yeah. When we bring people in, like it's interesting. When you bring people into your business and you make them connected with all departments, you would think you get like these well-rounded individuals and you do, don't get me wrong, but individuals tend to gravitate towards something that they really like. And so as I think about the folks that have been at my business for the last four years or four and a half years with me, I can think about maybe 10 or 12 people that have like been here the entire time with me from the beginning since we made those hires. And yes, they're all well-rounded, but they've all kind of found their niche within our business. And so we employ very much a subject matter expert 
type of mentality at PatientPop. So I can think of someone who's a subject matter expert at demand generation. I can think of one of my salespeople who is a subject matter in, uh, uh, expert at how we integrate with other technology platforms. And so what naturally happens when you sort of build that familial aspect is you get these people who are both well-rounded, but also, also experts in certain parts of your organization and like leverage that right? Yeah. Because as a business that's growing, and, and again, we're, we're a big business. I got 110 salespeople on my team, but still we're like a scrappy startup. So my training and enablement team doesn't have all the answers. So being able to have like what we call this SME team, subject matter experts, is so super helpful as you're doing tribal training, as you know, salespeople can go to each expert and learn about the business and feel like they're getting the, you know, the most intricate description of each part of the business from somebody who really loves that part. And so that happens naturally when you treat people, you know, as family and you, you bring in top performers and let them touch all parts of your, your, your organization early. How often are you training your team? We have an interesting thing. And I, I hired, you know, I'm, I'm based in LA and I hired a, another guy who had been a, a, a VP of sales at a previous business. Um, his name is Kevin Dorsey. And he's got a great reputation for being this incredible sales coach. And so to us, training is every day. He does boot camp every morning at 7 a.m. And those boot camps are, again, very niche, right? So one morning, it might be negotiation. The other morning for us, it might be how to sell an add-on service to our product, how to talk about an integration, how to deal with a frustrated customer. There are so many different things that you can do that we have it daily. And the way that I look at it is, your team should always be learning. So whether you call it a training or whatever, a boot camp doesn't, doesn't really matter what you call it. Like you should be learning every single solitary day. And so we do that every morning at, at 7 a.m. And listen, we, we miss some mornings here and there every once in a while and something else comes up, but we don't make them mandatory or required. It's just like, hey, we're doing a negotiation session tomorrow and on, it's Thursday. Who wants to join? And we'll have 30 people show up that say, i man, I'm, I'm struggling at negotiating. So this is great for me. So it's sort of an always be training mindset for us. That's really great. Let's kind of take a, a step aside from the hiring and first salespeople. How do you get product traction early on before you fully build out your marketing team and everything? You gave a good yeah. example, of one of your employees before. Yeah, I think like it's, it's taking that right? It's taking that, that first employee who kind of figures it out and then it's marrying that with a process. And the process is around messaging. So if you think about like building a sales organization, you won't always have a team full of 80 all-stars. If you do, God bless you, more power to you, but you most likely won't. So for me, it's really about framing up what you've learned from your top performer, and then putting it into a foundation that you can follow really easily. And so for me, it's, I look at sort of there's challenger sales and there's, you know, spin selling and all this different yeah. stuff. And I actually really like this thing that I got from copywriting and it's called the pastor method. I'm a huge fan of like B2B copywriting, like reading on a landing page and making a purchase because someone did a great job with their messaging. It's called the pastor method. It's P-A-S-T-O-R. And it's really like for us, it's creating pain, P, amplifying that pain to your customers. That's the A. Telling a story. That's the S. Showing them a transformation or testimonial. That's the T making them an offer, that's the O, and then asking them for a response, and that's the R. And 
we train all of our salespeople. We figured out what worked from guys like Sagar and Max and some of my first hires. And then I just built it into this pastor model so that when I onboard somebody new, you know, they don't have to figure it out. They just run this playbook from P all the way down through R. And if you can check off P-A-S-T-O-R on every one of your demos, you're most likely going to win. And so by being really consistent and having messaging that, that works, that's how you get product traction. I wish I had like a, a, a cooler or a hipper answer, but like the real answer is getting product traction is boring. It's repeatable. It's consistent. It's making sure that your messaging both resonates and sounds similar all the time once you figure out what works. So to me, that's how we got product traction early on. Interesting. I, w- I want to call you out on something though. Sure. Because you, you said to ha- if you could have that pastor and just check it off as you go down. Yeah. I always say that that's the worst thing you could actually do is sit there with the checkbox and sure. just make sure you're checking the boxes. Totally. Totally. <laughs> you, have to be, you have to be fluid inside of your sales pitch, right? But what I think what I meant by checking it down is like, if you tell some, a salesperson, you know, this is how our product works from a features perspective, what you're going to get is a salesperson who's pitching your, your features. We you know everyone knows it in sales is feature dumping, right? Versus like, if you can remember, hey, before I talk about features, I got to really build pain in the mind of the customer. The customer's got to feel some pain. And then once they feel that pain, I got to make sure that I'm amplifying that pain. That not only is that pain just hurt a little bit, it kind of hurts a lot, right? And then once I've got that pain really feeling amplified, I got to tell a really great story and attach it to a transformation. And that transformation has to be someone like the customer I'm talking to right now has gone through that pain, has felt that pain and is now transformed. And so it's less about maybe checking a box and it's more about learning that behavior over time so that's ingrained in you and you weave your features and your values into that story. So that that's sort of what I mean by, I guess, checking a box is having structure to your messaging and to the way that you talk about your, your product to your customer. When you're demoing, start with uh, the qualification part so that you actually get to understand their, their pain points and ask them sure. to speak about it as much as they can. Sure. And I I have a strong opinion about that as well. Like for me, discovery, like discovery circa 2010 was like, Hey, I ask a lot of questions in the upfront part of my, my pitch. Right. And then it's almost like discovery done, like (laughs) real, real discovery to me doesn't sound like discovery right? Yeah. Real discovery to me is almost hidden. It sounds like a best friend asking you questions about your problems because they really want to help. And what really great salespeople do in discovery is they, they act and they should care. They should care about their customers. Like that's the way that really great salespeople work is they care about their customers. And so they ask questions like a friend to uncover the pain, to uncover the problems. And they're really vested in actually solving those things. And to me, that's, that's, that's another thing that separates just really excellent salespeople. It, it doesn't stop at just the, the check boxes. That's right. Really, really got to dive in deep in, into that. And, and that's part of what you were saying earlier about hiring somebody that's curious. Totally. If you're not curious, you don't get that, uh, that quality, that trait. But the difference between asking a discovery question and hoping that you get the answers because you're ready to say something and like asking discovery to really be curious and understand what the customer is going through. Those are two very different things, even though the question might sound similar. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about, you know, most, most startups don't have a sales process already laid out for them. 
and they don't actually have a inbound marketing yet. Yep. So how can, how can an early stage company start building an outbound process? To me, it's just like, it's start, it's chipping away with outbound. Like there are so many things that you can do with outbound, right? But let's start with the really simple ones. To me, the most simple is starting by defining your process. Like, yeah, I, I know it's easy to say like some companies early on don't have process. Get process, like get at least like a foundational process, whether that's sales qualified lead to sales accepted lead to contract to one, right? Four very simple stages, like at least get some stages built and then start measuring the simple things from those stages, what are my conversion rates between the different stages? What is my time between the different stages? And once you start measuring those, you at least have a, a rudimentary process, right? And once you have a rudimentary process, you can start measuring improvement. And if you read any of like Yako Vandercuja's books on SaaS sales, you know, incremental improvements across your conversion rates, incremental improvements across your time rates lead to huge compound growth. And so for me, it's putting in these really simple rudimentary process like stakes, whether that's the, the, the stage, whether the time bound, the conversion rate. So first of all, I would say, get those things in place. And then the second thing that I would do is start measuring some of the performance indicators on the outbound side. So if you're making outbound phone calls, it's measuring amount of uh, gatekeepers talk to. It's measuring amount of decision makers talk to. It's talk time. And then it's really understanding, again, much like your stages, what are my conversion percentages there? And if my conversion percentages are high or low, what is that telling me as the person who's going to be coaching? And so it's really kind of putting your stake in the ground, measuring those things, looking for incremental improvement, and understanding what each of the data points is telling you. If you have someone who's getting to gatekeepers but not getting to decision makers, then they're not talking to your gatekeepers, right? If you've got someone who's getting to gatekeepers, converting well to decision makers, but then not booking a demo, you've got someone who doesn't understand the value of your product when they're speaking to a decision maker. If they're getting all the way to the demo and the demo isn't showing up, then you have someone who, who isn't evangelizing the value of your product, but also not generating enough pain where the person cares to show up. And those are all coaching opportunities. So for me, it's putting those stakes in the ground and then starting to measure everything and writing up a coaching playbook so that your outbound gets 1%, 2%, 3% better over time. And pretty soon you have, you have compound growth. Yeah, very much. When do you start to scale the company? When do you, after your first couple of hires, I mean, you said to always be hiring, but uh, yep. at what point do you decide, let's take this and let's move? Juice it. When you have consistent conversion rates and process, let me, let me maybe give you some backstory to that. I've worked with a few founders who have said, I've gone out and done X or Y, and I'm, I'm having a lot of success. And, and that's the founder, right? That doesn't mean it's time to scale. That's not consistent or repeatable. It's when you have two, three, four sales reps who are delivering the same conversion rates, the same time measurements, and closing similar amounts of business where you can feel really good about the consistency of your, your program. So for us at Patient Pop, I knew about four months in that we had uh, people on my team that could schedule two demos every day, that 65% of them would show up, that 30% of them would close, 
that I would get about 1.2 customers per close and I would have an average contract value back then of around $9,000. And I knew that I could do that across about four or five different people. And once I saw that happening consistently month over month, then I felt as though we had consistent repeatable scale there. So that's when we juiced it. That's when we turned the, the hiring switch on and we went from having four or five reps to having, I think, 20. And we didn't see those numbers uh, deviate that much. Obviously, when you bring in new employees, they may drop down a little bit at first, but watching those numbers catch back up and then being consistent told me that we were scaling in the right way. And then once you scale there and once you start adding more bodies into your pile, if you will, for lack of a better term, then it's, then it's adjusting those conversion rates. Then it's moving from a 30 to a 32% close rate, a 65 to a 68% show rate, average contract value from nine to 11K. And again, you get that compound growth over time. So for me, it's when you can say with, with relative confidence that you have a consistent, repeatable approach. There's a lot of talk about now once you scaled it, management. And should you hire from inside or from outside? Yeah. Oh, so for me, it's like, I'm a big fan of inside in, internal promotion for a few, different re- a few different reasons. So number one, it gives you a career path for your top performers, right? So people feel like they can grow. And if you don't allow growth inside of your organization, people will go elsewhere. And so I think about one of my earliest sales hires, man, did I not want him to go into management because he was so good at selling. And I just, I couldn't stand to lose that revenue. But when he started applying his knowledge to a team of 10, I more than made up for that revenue. So it's giving people a career path. It's tribal knowledge. It's taking that person and helping that person take what they do really well and make 10 people better instead of sort of one person better. And then last but not least, it's that familial aspect that I talked about in the beginning your top performers have most likely been through the different stakeholder learning processes from customer success to marketing, to sales, to the founders, to biz dev. And so they make for really well-rounded, holistic individuals that can help coach people about not just the sales process, not just closing this deal, but how to navigate their career at patient pop, how to navigate their their career at your business. And when you connect someone to a mentor like that, it's really powerful because they get hooked to that mentor and they want to follow that mentor. Whereas where you bring someone from the outside, they may not have that familial connection. They may not have all of the knowledge from the, the business, which they'll get over time, but they're learning at the same time as the, the, the reps. And yeah. we've had some really successful external hires, but most of my management team is internal. Interesting. What percentage would you say? 80%. 80% internal. Wow. Wrapping some things up, what is uh, one of the biggest mistakes you've made as an early stage salesperson that people could learn from? Yeah, as a salesperson or a sales uh, leader? Both. As a salesperson, it was not caring enough. Like I, so I, when I was an early salesperson at a business before ZocDoc, um, I was just, I was immature. I didn't understand the, the responsibility that I had been given as an early sales hire. I didn't realize how much being an early salesperson at a business kind of owns your life until you figure it out. And you're almost like the founder. 
I mean, yeah. you're in it. You're in it 24-7 early on. And it was, it was simply an attitude problem early on. That was a huge thing, a huge mistake I made when I was young and, and immature. And I see a lot of people making that, just not giving enough of themselves early on to really help grow a business. And as a sales leader, it wasn't planning effectively. If I take a look back at a year where I missed my targets, which has been very infrequent, that was 2017. And I missed a few of my targets, which again, I was really disappointed by. And the reason was that I didn't complete my operating plan in time, meaning I was planning as the year was going. And we were always, we were always two or three steps behind. And I can remember getting kind of chewed out in a board meeting for that, for not being proactive with my planning. And now I'm planning a year in advance. Like I'm looking at what does 2020 look like for, for patient pop? What does 2021 look like? And I now delegate the tactical short-term stuff to other members of my team. And as the SVP of sales, I'm focused on the, the metrics that move the ball you know, in the long term. So that was a huge mistake I made as an early executive and a young executive. All right. So really appreciate you coming on, Justin, sure. today and uh, sharing. I mean, I could go on for another hour or two with you. <laughs> How can people reach out to you and find you? Yeah, I, they can just look me up on LinkedIn, Justin Welsh. They can also follow me on Twitter at Justin Sass. That's Justin, S-A-A-S. And then they can visit my website and read about all the things I've learned building startup businesses. And that's just justindwelsh.com. And Welsh is W-E-L-S-H. Great. I'll put the link in uh, show notes as well. Great, Justin. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Enjoyed being on. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io. All right, Justin, let's finish things off with the final five. What cool. is your, fi- your favorite sales or leadership book? My favorite sales book is the SaaS Sales Method by Jaco Vandercoog. Do you have some of that you follow or read for sales and leadership ideas? I do. I mean, I, I read that book to really help establish repeatable processes that are based on data. So that book uh, to me has been a real lifesaver in, in establishing the data-driven approach that we have at PatientPulp. Okay. And is there like somebody, I mean, does he have an active blog and stuff as well? Or Yeah. I, I can't recall the name of his consulting firm at the, off the top of my head, but yeah, it's Jaco Vanderkuj and you can find him online and in a lot of different places. Uh, he's speaking right now, I think uh, down at Unleash Conference in San Diego, but he's a guy who I follow. And then someone you had on your show, Mark Roberge, is, is another guy that I follow a lot for, for leadership, you know, and, and selling tactics and strategies. He's, he's a, a huge winner in my book, having taken HubSpot to over 100 million in recurring revenue. He's all for measuring everything. It's great. <laughs> I love him. Yeah. Yep. All right. Are you available 24-7 or do you have no. your own? <laughs> no, no. Early on in my career, I was maybe available 24-7. Like I, I kind of prided myself on that. That was my brand at work. I was that guy who was like super available and like working hard and hustling 24-7. But as I got older, uh, that, that just didn't work anymore. And so I delegate effectively. I work from home effectively. So my time is spent on moving the one or two major metrics for my business. And that's what I spend my time on. And I spend that time inside of nine to five and I rest my body and my mind uh, from five to nine. What is your favorite tool used for sales? 
gong.io. I love okay. gong. It's great because it's helpful for the rep, right? Because the rep can learn from themselves. It's helpful for the manager because the manager can actually see what the reps are doing. And it's helpful for me. You know, I like to just dive in and listen to, to calls every once in a while and say, how, what's changed since I'm not too much in the weeds anymore? And then, you know, it's helpful for customer success because they can see how we sell and it's helpful for marketing. They can hear what our customers want. To me, it's like such a great tool for the whole organization. So I love gong.io. Excellent. I just had a, a meet the CEO on the, on the show. Awesome. Great tool. And, and I think about 50% of my guests say that that's their favorite tool. So yeah. And Chris Orlob, who's a, or Orlob, who's a, one of the guys over there, I think he's in their marketing department is churning out some of the best thought leadership content on the web. All right. Last question. What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders and uh, sales leaders out there? Wow. That's a great question. I would say establish a process for your success because every founder that I talk to and I do a lot of advising and consulting outside of my work at Patient Pop, they want to scale. Like they want to get to scale, but you have to be patient. Just because you win 10 customers or 20 customers or 30 customers doesn't mean that you're ready for scale. When you win 30 customers and you do it in the exact same way with the exact same results and it's super consistent and you can say with a 90% window that you're, you're going to bring on those 30 customers because you understand your process from start to finish, that is when you scale. And I would say be cautious right? So wait until you have that success process defined, wait until it's consistent and repeatable, and then pull the lever, but do not do it beforehand, or you will find yourself, uh, at least in my experience, in a world of hurt. Great. Justin, thanks again for joining us. Adam, thanks for having me, man. Really appreciate it.